Well, this morning I'm going to uh, be bringing our Advent series from the book of Micah to a close. Um, If you have not been able to follow along over the last few weeks, we do put all of our sermons on both YouTube. uh, We live stream on Facebook. There's folks uh, streaming right now. We also upload the audio as a podcast to our website, and you can get that through uh, the Apple Podcast app or through Spotify or anywhere else uh, podcasts are found. Um, So you can get caught up if you want, but we are going to bring this uh, series to a close. And one of the things that we would find if we had the time to go through all of chapter 7, which is the last chapter in the book here, is that all the themes that we had, have already discussed and seen from previous times in Micah are, are summarized or touched upon again here in the last chapter. You don't have to look very far down from the beginning of the chapter to find uh, statements about the universal waywardness of, of Israel and who've given themselves over to idolatry and, and that's manifested in the, the oppression of, of others and, and of each other. In chapters two, uh, verses 2 and 4, Micah laments, um, not one person is left that is honest as he looks across the nation. And, and, as, and by extension, he's looking almost like at the whole world. There's no one around that is honest. Everyone is corrupted. Everyone is deceitful. Even the best of them, he says, is like a briar. The most honest is as dangerous as a hedge of thorns. And because of this, there in verse 4, God's judgment is coming swiftly upon his people. But again, yes, there's, there's statements of judgment and God's wrath against idolatry and oppression. But again, here in chapter 7, like we've seen elsewhere throughout Micah, we find Micah's hope in God's coming restoration. He trusts that God's judgment on his people has Nothing less than their salvation in mind. And you and I have a hard time putting those two together. How can God be judging and also be concerned with saving at the same time? Well, that's exactly what God is doing. And that's what Micah sees as he looks at what God is about to do. Verse 7, as for me, he says, as one numbered among the many who stand under God's condemnation, as for me, I will look to the Lord, how? For help. Yes, his judgment's coming, and rightfully so, but I look to the one who's judging for help. I will wait confidently for God to save me, and God will certainly hear me. Verse 13, he he sees Israel having been one day rebuilt in a place where the nations will come to give God the honor that he is due. Like a shepherd, verses 14 through 17, God will lead and protect his sheep and perform great miracles among them like he did for the Israelites when they were in Egypt. Those are incredible statements that are all held together in this one chapter. The, the power and the wrath of God against sin and injustice and oppression, and then the mighty acts of God to save and redeem to the uttermost. All throughout his difficult message of God's indictment are these promises of God. Yes, his, his indictment in the heavenly courtroom against his people is legitimate, and it is grave, and it is something that you cannot ignore. But also, all throughout this letter of, of judgment are punctuations of grace and promise and hope. All of which, like all the themes of Advent that we've celebrated the last several weeks, converge upon and find their fulfillment in Jesus. So if you want to know how God's going to fulfill his promises to the people of Micah's day, the answer is him. On him, God's righteous judgment against sin has been revealed, and by the way, it has been satisfied God hasn't just revealed his judgment for sin 
in his son, he's also satisfied his wrath for those things in his son. Through him, men and women and boys and girls of every nation, tribe, and tongue who are far off can be brought near once more. God has kept his promises, his promises to Abraham, that through him, blessing would come to all the world, even as undeserving as his people then were, as undeserving as people like you and I are today, God will always keep his promises. Everything is ever said, he will be faithful to do exactly as he says he will do. And that should inspire hope for you this morning. That should produce joy and peace in your life today, even in your own times of trouble. Because we know as Christians that the difficulties we experience in life are not evidence that God has abandoned his people. That's not what difficulties are. They're not, they're not evidence that God is somehow powerless against the darkness. No, God permits these things. He even allows us to suffer the consequences of our own decisions and our own unfaithfulness. Why? In order that he might better demonstrate his presence and power in our lives to save And only God can do that. So we come now to the end of Micah, to this last chapter. And I'm going to read here the last three verses of the entire book. So if you have one of the guest Bibles, we're going to be on page 748. You're welcome to turn there now. I'm going to read Micah 7, 18 through 20. Verse 18, where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people, You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors Abraham and Jacob long ago. I admit Micah can be hard to read. Micah can be hard to read because people generally love ideas of, you know, grace and forgiveness and heaven, and we love those sort of positive things, but we sort of bristle and get, you know, kind of tight when we start talking about things like hell and wrath and judgment. And, and the thing with Micah as we've already noted this morning, and as we've already seen multiple times over the last several weeks, he has both present and held together in perfect balance and harmony all throughout his letter. And you and I have a really hard time doing that in our day-to-day lives. Not, and I'm not even talking in some sort of theoretical, you know, theological level. Yes, theologically, we affirm certain things to be true about God, and we know that in God, these things can be held together perfectly because God is God. But in our day-to-day lives— you know, sort of when the rubber meets the road and we put our faith into practice, we, we wrestle with holding these what seem like extremes, opposite ends of a spectrum. We have a hard time holding them together in our faith and in our, the working out of our faith in life. We have a hard time struggling to grasp how a truly you know, loving God, how he could be wrathful. But if that's true for your life, I want you to consider this question. How can God... Be truly loving unless there is justice and vindication for the oppressed. And in order for there to be justice and vindication for the oppressed, how can that happen unless there is judgment for oppression? 
So you see, if you maintain that God is love, then you almost, in a broken world such as this, you have to maintain that he is also one who judges and has wrath. Because it is out of his love for those who are the oppressed that God judges oppression, that God judges evil, that God judges the wickedness and injustice of the world. If there is no ultimate reckoning for evil in this world, then how can you talk meaningfully of a God who is loved to a Jew about a monster such as Hitler? What, what do you say if there's no ultimate reckoning for evil to a Jew? What do you say to a little girl who's been sold into trafficking? What do you say to a little boy who was beaten and abused by a father? What do you say to someone who's suffering at the, the hands of, of the wicked? That God is love? Well, if God is love, where's justice? Our hearts cry out for justice when we talk about God as love. If God is truly loving, shouldn't he then be outraged by evil? And wouldn't the absence of such outrage speak to a low estimation of his value and worth of people? So you see that the two aren't so mutually exclusive as they seem on the surface. And contrary to what seems like common sense, a God who does not vindicate, a God who does not execute wrath against evil, is not a God that we can say is loving at all, at least in a broken world like this. In letters to Malcolm, C.S. Lewis responds to Malcolm's uh, trouble with the idea of a wrathful God. Malcolm finds it more helpful to, to think of God's wrath like something like an electrical wire, a live electrical wire. Malcolm says, you know, there's power there, and if you touch it, you'll be harmed. But it's not a personal, conscious power. It doesn't get angry with us, but if we blunder against it, we get a shock. And no doubt, Malcolm finds, found, I think, on, I'm assuming, found some degree of, of comfort in that, I guess. I don't know where he finds it, but he does. Well, Lewis responds like this, and I think he hits the nail on the head. My dear Malcolm, what do you suppose you have gained by substituting the image of a live wire for that of an angered majesty. You have shut us all up in despair, for the angry can forgive, and electricity can't. Interesting, isn't it? The angry can forgive, electricity can't. Turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval, and you also turn his love into mere humanitarianism. The consuming fire and the perfect beauty both vanish. This past week, <laughs> my wife and I, we finally pulled the trigger and replaced our, uh, our aging and dying dryer. Yeah, don't, don't weep. It needed to go. It needed to be put out of its misery. Been a long time coming. And um, the one that came out was, uh, was pretty old and it was terribly inefficient and I'm pretty sure it was an all-around fire hazard and since I didn't fancy burning the parsonage down at Christmas, um, we decided it was time to be out with the old and in with the new. I've heard a lot of uh, really nice compliments for uh, the Christmas lights in our house. Um, I, I want that to be the only way my house is illuminated in the dark uh, this time of the year. So uh, we got rid of that old, that old clunker and put a new one in there. And, uh, and you know, step one in, in any replacing or servicing a major appliance is to do what? turn off the power. <laughs> That's right. Unplug it, you know, turn off, turn off the power because anyone who knows anything about electricity knows how dangerous it can be, right? And it has to, because it's so dangerous, it has to be treated with a degree of respect. It has to be treated with a degree of fear. 
Because this thing that produces you know, light and comfort and beauty in our lives can also be the end of our lives if we're not careful. And when we think that way, one can generally see where Malcolm is coming from in likening the wrath of God to a, an exposed live wire that you don't want to cross or touch. We get it. But as always, I think Lewis is right. When you reduce God to some power, you render him impersonal. And that's not the God of the Scriptures at all. Some sort of impersonal, don't-cross-me kind of deity out there. If that's your, your concept of God that you brought with you in here to church this morning, then take a look around. We don't celebrate a live wire at Christmas. We celebrate a God who has come near a personal God, who's revealed himself fully through his son, who took on flesh, just like you and I. He is a personal God, a God of holy love. Yes, a God who gets righteously angry over evil and he will not tolerate it and he's working to eradicate it from the world and that is the hope for the slave. That is the hope for the oppressed. That is the hope for those who are suffering injustice. We want God to be holy. We want God to, to execute his justice upon all injustice. That's great. That's, that's hope for us. But he's also a God who loves the entire world. Not just the oppressed. God loves the oppressor. He values all life. Every person is precious to him. And he, just as he's working to eradicate evil from the world, he's also working to bring all who are far off from himself back to himself near. My youngest son, Will, is, uh, well, I guess they're all theologians in a way, but lately my son, Will, my youngest, has been our, our theologian at the house. And he's the one that's always asking me the really hard questions, and he, he, he finds a way to ask them at really the... <laughs> I guess, is there a bad, a good or a bad time? Do you, it seems like the most inconvenient times for me, I'm trying to remember something or do something, and I get, you know, this big theological question gets, you know, put in front of my face. The one the other day was this. When Adam and Eve sinned, why didn't God just start all over? It's a fair question. I mean, think about it, right? They messed everything up. They, 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 they brought brokenness and ruin to God's perfect creation. And, and God would have been perfectly justified, I would think, to just get rid of them and start all over again. And after all, it's not like he's wiping out a billion people, right? Just two, two people would have been that hard. Listen, when, when I'm working on something and I make a little mistake, it's, I don't throw everything out. I just get rid of that you can get rid of the little mistake and start, just get rid of the little, the two little mistakes and start over and, you know, we're all good. Makes sense. Well, uh, well, I don't claim to know what God was thinking, but based on what we know about God that he's revealed to us in his word, this was my best response to him. I said, well, son, God loved. God loved Adam and Eve. Do you ever think about it that way? Yes, there's, there are consequences for their decision. And you and I have inherited a, a brokenness from them. And there's brokenness in the world. 
And yet, God loved them. And his plan, this is my, I'm embellishing a little bit. I, I think it was much, much less polished at the moment, but I tried to say this. His plan is never to get rid of people. His plan is to save people. Yes, he hates sin. He hates oppression. He hates injustice. But oh, how he loves people. Whether they're the victims of evil or the perpetrators of evil. And his salvation is not annihilation, but restoration. Amen. Amen. And he is not willing that any, any would perish. Even the very worst of us. See, God's not some impersonal power out there that you just hoping to make it through life without crossing. God is a loving father. One who judges, but one who also forgives. And Micah knows this about God. He may not understand it fully. I'm not sure I understand it fully. But he knows enough about God's heart that he can say this in verse, look at verse nine. Look what he says. Tell me this isn't a, Statement of faith that we could learn from. I will be patient as the Lord punishes me. Sounds a lot like a repentant heart, doesn't it? One that acknowledges one's own failure and rebellion and wickedness. I will be patient as the Lord punishes me for I have sinned against him. But after that, He will take up my case and give me justice for all I have suffered from my enemies. Wow. The same judge who rightly finds Micah guilty is also the one who pleads Micah's case and executes justice on his behalf. And I want to ask you something. Can Mere impersonal power do that? No. Only a personal God of holy love can hate evil. And by the way, he hates evil in the world because he loves the people in the world. But only a personal God of holy love can hate evil, but also forgive and restore people without ever compromising his holiness. I know it's Christmas, but do you see where Micah's leading us? And if you ever fail to make the connection between Christmas and where Micah is leading us, then you miss the point of Christmas. Micah is not leading us just to Christmas. He's leading us to Good Friday and to Easter. He's leading us to the cross. That place where a God of holy love executes his wrath and justice upon all sin, but he does it upon himself. Your sin and yours and yours and mine, he took upon himself and satisfied his wrath perfectly, completely. There's nothing you have done, there's nothing you could do, there's nothing you are that could not be 
satisfied on the cross of Jesus as it, as it pertains to the wrath of God against it. Jesus became one of us. He went on trial on, in our place. He bore our judgment, and on him God's justice against your sin and my sin has been satisfied. The court has been adjourned, and you and I can walk free. Hallelujah. As Paul says in Romans three twenty six, God is both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in his son. He is at once both at the same time. <laughs> Micah couldn't possibly have known how God was going to resolve this tension between holiness and love, but he trusts God and he knows that God will. And that is very instructive for you and for me, not in some classroom, but in your everyday life. When you leave this beautiful space with the, the comforts of the climate control and the, the candles and, and the, the flowers and, and, and the nice Christian Sunday morning smiles, and when you go back out into the world and you need the truth of God's word to, to intersect with your life and bring some type of hope, some type of joy, some type of peace, some type of meaning in the midst of it all, you can find it here. You don't know how it's going to happen. You just know that it will. Micah doesn't know how God is going to bring the, the solution to these questions in his mind and in his heart, but he knows God's heart, and that's enough for him. In that passage I read at the very beginning, verses 18 through 20, that expresses this knowledge of God's heart perfectly. It's as if Micah is saying, I know you're going to judge sin because you are a righteous God. You are a holy God. But I also know this. You've promised to forgive You promised to remove sin from my life. You delight in making us your own. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know that you will. And he has, hasn't he? He has. All the promises that remained question marks, not not that they would be fulfilled, but how they would be fulfilled. All the, the promises with question marks in Micah have been fulfilled in Jesus. Through Mary's baby in the manger at Christmas, Christ came into the world to show us in the flesh the holy love of God. He went through hell on the cross. He experienced the fullness of God's righteous abandonment. He went into the exile of the grave, experienced the full extent and consequences of what sin has produced in this broken world, and yet the one who should speak against us is the very one who speaks on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7, He is able to save forever those who come to God through Christ, since Christ always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, he is a great high priest who stands before God and pleads for you. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive, O Lord, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Jesus is your intercessor today. And my prayer for you this morning 
is that this message of Micah would ring true in your heart this Christmas season so that you, in all the mess of your life, in all the brokenness, and all the hurt, can join Micah in saying, I don't know how you're going to make right all the things in the world. You can join Micah in saying, I don't know how you're going to make all the things right that are wrong in me. You can join with Micah and say, I don't know how you're going to bring hope. I don't know how you're going to bring peace. I don't know how you're going to bring joy or life or salvation to the brokenness of my life, but I know that you will. And you can know that this morning because God has revealed to you his heart and he has made himself known once and for all through his son who shows us not only the cost and the consequences of sin, but also the immeasurable riches of his mercy and his grace and kindness, justice for the oppressed, and salvation even for the oppressor. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your unfailing and your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. And he has done just that, hasn't he? Unfailing love has come, and his name is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that you might live and that I might live. Would you put your trust in him today? Can the, the love of God through Christ be what all of this is all about? Not just for this week or for this season, but for your whole life. I invite you to put your faith in him today. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that... Um, that Christian faith is not about having full, exhaustive comprehension of all things. And how beautifully that is expressed in a morning when five elementary age kids or younger are baptized. Because the life of faith is not understanding everything perfectly. It's not being able to answer with a 100% score the hardest theological test that the best seminary in the world can produce. Now, the life of faith is receiving grace and trust and obedience. With whatever light has been revealed, Lord, we, we live in a way that you accept when we walk in the light. And you've revealed to us that you are not some distant, harsh, impersonal entity, but a, a father and a son and a spirit. A trinity of persons, an eternal communion of life and love that has made his home in us and us in him. Lord, can Christmas be about that this year? Because that alone is what is ultimately real. 
Everything else in this world is going to be burned up in the end as you bring ultimate renewal to your creation. All that will remain is holy love. So Lord, would the holy love that you are come to define me and us here today? We don't know how it'll happen. We don't know what it all means, but we trust in your promises. That even though there's brokenness around us and brokenness brokenness within, you are making all things new. Come and do your work in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.